Are you ready? ready. All right. We're going to put the pedal to the metal tonight. We're going zero to 60 real quick. All right. So here's what I want you to do. First John chapter five. Well, actually the end of chapter four into chapter five. So put your finger there. Then I want you to go to first Corinthians chapter six. We're going to be right there in just a second. And then I want you to find Ephesians chapter 2. So 1 John 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians chapter 2. Okay? Because we're just going to, we're going to click this off. And for those of you that are just so frustrated trying to keep up with me tonight, just listen to the podcast. Okay? Because we, we're going to just, got a lot of good stuff to share with you tonight on our last night in 1 John. And though we're not going to get to the end of 1 John, we're going to come pretty, pretty close. So here's what we want to begin with tonight. What we know, K-N-O-W, is essential to our spiritual well-being. What we know is essential to our spiritual well-being. God said, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. But remember, biblically knowing something is more than just, in a sense, being aware of it up here in my head. To biblically know something is to have an awareness of it, but also to have a great appreciation for it. It is, in a sense, to allow our life to be shaped by this knowledge. That's why it's essential to our spiritual well-being. It's more than just a bunch of facts that sits in our head. It is truth that shapes our life. Again, knowledge in the Bible is not only what we are aware of, it is what we truly come to appreciate. And with that being said, I want you to look with me quickly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is just by way of sort of context or background or even introduction. I want you to see here in this chapter alone, How Paul, six times, makes reference to the Corinthian Christians of things that they did not know. Notice verse 2. Or do you not know? Then verse 3. Do you not know? Then verse 9. Do you not know? Verse 15. Do you not know? Verse 16. Or do you not know? And finally, verse 19, or do you not know? Six times Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know how tragic it is that you don't know these things? And again, it's not just, well, I know that. It's to come to truly be aware of it and appreciate it to the point where it shapes our life. Now, the reason I wanted to start there. It's if you come back over then to 1 John chapter 5, I want you to see in this chapter here that John uses the word no eight times in this chapter. In chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. Over to verse 13, I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Which, by the way, and we'll talk about this at the end, that means more than just knowing I'm saved. 
That means I'm aware of and I appreciate all the things that I have as a follower of Jesus Christ that are mine because I am a Christian. Then notice verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, then verse 15, we know that we have the request. In other words, we know God hears and answers prayer. Then over in verse 18, we know that everyone fathered by God does not sin. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. And finally, in verse 20, two times, we know that the Son of God has come, given us insight to know him who is true. Over and over and over again, John is saying, we need as followers of Jesus to know these things. All along in his letter, he's been talking about the importance and, and, and um, just again, essentialness of fellowship with God. And our fellowship is based not on ignorance, but on knowledge, if you will. The more you and I know who we are and who God is, the more we should be drawn in to fellowship and into the presence of God, into worship of God, into spending time with God. Now, with all that said, that was just the introduction. Now I want to start digging in to the rest of First John. And last week we left off at verse 17, where we said... Because just as Jesus is, the very last phrase of verse 17, so are we in this world. And I ask you guys to think about that, consider that. What do you think that that means? And that's where we want to start tonight. Because I want us to see tonight, here's where John's coming from. Again, all based on this importance of knowing. John says... We need to realize as Christians that there is, and I'm going to use several words, all synonyms. You pick which one resonates with you. There is a correlation. There is a parallel. There is an interrelationship. There is an equivalence. There is a harmony between certain things in our Christian life. And that's where John's going tonight as he ends this letter. He wants us to know If this is true, then this is true. If this isn't true, then that's not true. He wants to show us how our life, our spiritual life, is all tied together to other things. And, And there's nothing that can be compartmentalized. There's nothing that can sit over here and go, well, that doesn't affect this or that. No. John wants us to understand. It's all interrelated, if you will. It's all paralleled. It's all interconnected with each other. And all of it ties together. And that's what he wants us to know. So the first thing is this. Our knowledge of our position, our spiritual position, is going to affect our perspective and our practice as followers of Jesus Christ. I think that's what he means when he says, as Jesus Christ is so are we, in a sense, to be in this world. Well, what is Jesus Christ is? And I know that's terrible grammar. But when you think about what Jesus Christ is, what is he? Where, where is he? Well, after Jesus ascended and went back up to heaven, he's at the right hand of God the Father, right? Right? 
In fact, this is why I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Begin reading with me and following along at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. And you can begin to see then what John's talking about when he says, Just as Jesus is, so are we to be in this world. I love these verses. These verses always blow me away no matter how many times I read them and study them. But God, Ephesians 2, 4. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And here's the key. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Can anybody say amen to that one? Folks, that's not talking about our future position. That's talking about our present spiritual position right now. From God's perspective, He has seated us with Christ in heavenly places. That's where we are. That's our spiritual position. Yeah, practically, we have to slog it out here on earth. But he's saying, if you and I as Christians would remember that just as Jesus is, so are we even in this world, even on earth. If we can remember that's our spiritual position, that's where we should navigate from. We shouldn't navigate from a position of, I'm just this poor old human being here, just again, slogging it out here on earth. No! Once I became a Christian, God raised me up. He has seated me with Christ in heavenly places. That's my spiritual position. And that's where God sees me, you see. Because He knows that that's where I will be one day. Yes, I'm here, but spiritually, positionally, I'm there. And and He wants, John wants, Paul wants, that knowledge of our position in Christ to affect our everyday perspective and practice here on earth. That's what John, I think, means when he says, just as Jesus is, so are we in this world. We don't navigate this life from down here. We navigate this life from up there, you see. That's how we've got to look at it. Because we have all the resources of God. We're we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. We've been raised up with Christ. We're more than conquerors. That's our position. And instead of looking at ourselves as, as, you know, meagerly uh, trying to fight through life down here, we've got to look at it from that perspective down, not from this perspective up. The next thing John wants us to know then, if we go back to 1 John... Again, that correlates to one another, that parallels or interrelates with one another, is that our growing realization of God's love will affect our fearlessness or is connected to being a fearless person. Notice what John says in verse 17. By this love is perfected. And again, we talked about this last week. It means to, to grow, to mature. He says, with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. 
Because just as Jesus is, so are we in this world. There is no fear, no dread, no terror in love, but perfect love, a growing, maturing love, drives or literally thrusts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The dread or torment of an upcoming judgment or paying of a penalty. And then John goes on to say, the one who fears punishment, the one who's terrified or frightened of standing at the judgment seat of Christ has not been perfected in love. We haven't allowed our our love to grow and mature. Why? Because when we start thinking about standing before God, there's an apprehension there. There's an unhealthy fear there. Again, John's not talking about we shouldn't have reverence or respect for God always. But John here is talking about an unhealthy fear. And John says there's a correlation, there's a parallel between my growing realization of God's love for me and how I view the day of judgment, how I view standing before Christ. Am I... Am I apprehensive about that? John says, when we let our love grow and mature, when we, when we grow in, in, in understanding God's love for us, that won't be the case. It will literally drive that out. I can remember, even as a child, one of the false teachings and erroneous views that, that was going around the church many, in many circles that scared even Christians to death about the day of judgment was, and I don't know whether maybe you you heard it too when you were growing up in church, was that when we get to heaven, even as a Christian, God's going to have this big screen, bigger than this, and He's going to throw every bad thing that we've ever done up there on that screen, and everybody's going to see it. I was like, oh my God. You know, that's, that's what I get to look... I'm, I'm not looking forward to that. I don't want that. And that's what John's saying. That if we understood the love of God, we would have confidence in the day of judgment. We, we wouldn't be afraid to stand before Jesus and to give an account of our life. That's not going to be a, a bad thing. The penalty for our sin has already been paid by Jesus. We have peace with God. We don't have to fear being punished by God when we get to the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, we're going to have to give an account. Yes, we're going to be rewarded. Yes, we might have to answer some questions, but it's not something that we should be fearful of. And so John says there's going to be a connection between our growing realization of God's love for us and the fearlessness by which we enter life. Notice the next one. Our reception of God's love and our giving of love to others in verse 19. We love because He loved us first. He loved us prior to us loving Him. He loved us before we loved Him. In a sense, God always took the initiative in love. And notice here that John in verse 19 is saying that God's love for us is not only the foundation, but the fuel for our loving others. It should inspire us and motivate us to love others. So the more you and I receive God's love, the more we'll give love to others. That's the connection. That's what John wants us to know. If you and I aren't giving love to others, and loving others the way God loves us, then that means we truly have not received His love for us. 
Because John wants us to understand, if you and I will open up our lives and our hearts to God's love for us and let Him just fill us with His love, then that love for, that He pours into us will just overflow to others and we'll give love because we have received love. Those that have a hard time giving love are those that are having a challenge receiving the love that God has for them. God couldn't love me. I've done too many bad things. I've messed up too much. I've failed him too much. And they're always doubting the unconditional love of God. And so John says, no, we love. And notice in the original text, in the Greek text, there is no object. If your English translation has an object there, that is not in the majority of Greek texts because John wants to leave the object open. We love God because He first loved us. We love our fellow Christians because He first loved us. We love others because He first loved us. John says, it doesn't matter. You put whatever object in there you want. Simply, John is saying, we give love when we receive God's love. There's the connection there. Then John goes on to say, this is something else I want us to know. Our love for God and our love for fellow Christians is absolutely intertwined. This is something we've got to know. Our love for God is absolutely intertwined with our love for fellow Christians. Notice what he says in verse 20. And this is actually something that John talks the most about in this whole passage because it goes all the way through chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to pick it up in verse 20. If anyone says, affirms, maintains, I love God, and yet hates his fellow Christian, he's a liar. Now again, many even Christians say, well, I don't hate my, I, I don't hate my fellow Christian. Let's again review what the word hate means here. It means to slight, to disregard, or to be indifferent towards. That's what it means. You know, I don't have to have a, a heart filled with hate to where I want to, you know, see that person, you know, disappear or something. No. It literally means to love less, you see. On a comparative basis, if you will. In other words... I love things more than I love my fellow Christians. I, I love, you know, my reputation and my success or that more than I love other Christians. And what he's saying is simply, I can't claim that I love God if I don't lay down my life for my fellow Christians. He says, because the one who does not love his fellow Christian whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This condition, John says, is irreconcilable. There's no way we can reconcile it. If I truly love God, then I will love the family of God. I will love my spiritual family. I will love my brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes on to say in verse 21, in the commandment, not the suggestion, the expectation of God is we have this. The one who loves God should love his fellow Christian too. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been fathered by God, and everyone who loves the Father loves the child fathered by Him. In other words, if I love God the Father, I will love all of His spiritual offspring too. There is always a correlation between my love for God and my love for my fellow Christians. You see, John, again, wants us to know that. 
Because they're going to be connected. Can't be separated. You see. Then, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 5, he says this. Our love for our spiritual family is also connected to our love for God. In a sense, now he just flips it. Notice what he says in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God whenever we love God. In other words, he's saying, the best thing I can do for my brothers and sisters in Christ is to make sure I am in love with God. That I am loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. If I'm doing that, then I'm going to be a benefit and a profit to my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like saying to a spouse, because I've done this many times in marital counseling over the years, the best thing you can do for your spouse if you're married is to put God first in your life. Not to put them first in your life, to put God first in your life. Because if you as a spouse are putting God first in your life, if he's the priority, then you'll be loving your spouse. You'll be in a good spiritual place. You'll be where you are selflessly, you know, giving and and all of that because you're receiving God's love and therefore you're going to be a better lover of your spouse. You see, it's what I tell parents. The best thing you as parents can do for your children, put God first in your life. You see, best thing. And then secondly, before them, put your wife or husband then as the next priority. That's the best thing you can do for your children. And that's really what John's saying here. He says, you want to benefit your brothers and sisters in Christ? You want to show them that you love them? Then you'll love God. You'll make God the priority of your life. And then notice he also then continues. He says, there's also a correlation between our love for the children of God and our obedience to God's commandments. John says that in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God whenever we love God and obey His commandments. Again, the best thing I can do for my brothers and sisters in Christ is to be an obedient servant of God, to do what God tells me to do. Because then that means not only am I, you know, being blessed because I'm following God, but I'm going to be a blessing to others because if I'm following God and I'm doing what he wants me to do, then he's always going to have me in a position where my life will be a profit and benefit to those around me. By the way, The word obey simply means to carry out or execute his commandments. And when you think about the commandments of God, think about authority. Because that's the word that's sort of behind commandments. They are authoritative principles for living that God gives us. They have to carry authority and force. That's why they're commandments. That's why they're not suggestions, if you will. And so when God speaks to me, we should say, yes, Lord, I'll... I'll follow, you see. So again, John wants to keep drawing all of these parallels. He wants to show us this is related to this. And this affects this. This is what I want Christians to know. I I don't want them just to be aware of it, though. I want them to have a deep appreciation for this. Because what they're going to see after this is how everything connects. Everything is interrelated. There is no such thing, again, as compartmentalizing part of my life, you see. So let me even take it a step further. What John is also saying, I'm just going to be plain about this, is this. When you and I, as a Christian, are not in a good place spiritually, we put a drag on the entire community of believers. 
our life negatively affects the body. Just like if I'm in a good place spiritually, and I'm a healthy and I'm fit spiritually, then my life will positively affect the community of believers. That's what John's saying here, you see. So that's again where we, we, we are so selfish sometimes as Christians because, again, even as how we look at church and being part of the church and the community of believers, it's like, well, I don't need to go to church and I don't need to be faithful and I don't need to be invested and I don't need to be involved. Wait a minute. God didn't call us out of our homes to be part of the church for us alone. He called us to be part of the church so that our life could positively benefit and profit my brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, I can't say, I love you, God, and have no love for my fellow Christians. John says, no, can't be that way. It's all connected. Then, Notice in verse 3, John says this, Our love for God will also be connected with keeping His commandments. And keeping His commandments is different than obeying His commandments. John is saying, this is love of God. When we keep His commandments. There's going to be a connection. If I love God, I will keep His commandments. To keep means to guard, to watch over. Uh, We could go on to say to maintain or preserve or even keep intact. So think about what John's saying. John is saying that you and I as followers of God have been entrusted with his word. And besides obeying it, besides carrying it out and executing it, we also are responsible to make sure that we keep it intact. That we don't add to it that we don't take out of it what we don't like, but that we just let the Word of God be the Word of God and we don't tamper with it. We we don't tinker with it. We just let it speak as God speaks. And we guard it. And that is so necessary today because, again, down through history, everybody's tried to, to tinker, manipulate, twist the Word of God to make it, fit what they want or to to make it fit their theology or or their doctrine or whatever and and John is saying if we love God we will we'll get our hands off the word of God and simply let it speak into our life and we as Christians as a church will seek to guard this word to preserve it to not let anybody tamper with it and take things out that they don't like and put things in that they do like that's how we can show God that we love, his, love Him by our love, if you will, for the Word of God and making sure that we keep it, that we watch over it, and that we preserve it. Because part of our responsibility as the church and as the body of Christ is to make sure that what we hand down to the next generation, that the generation before us handed down to us, is exactly what God said, and that's it. Because that's really important. God entrusts every generation with His Word. And He wants us to hand that Word intact down to the next generation, you see, without changing it. And that's what it means to keep His Word. And so John says that's how we show our love for God. Then, notice this. John also goes on to say, 
our keeping of his commandments is also connected to our attitude towards his commandments. That we'll be more apt to keep his commandments when our attitude towards his commandments is this. That we keep his commandments and his commandments do not weigh us down. It means we don't look at them as being unreasonable or oppressive or burdensome. I'm not going to watch over something if it's burdensome, if it's oppressive, if it's unreasonable. I'm going to try to distance myself or I'm going to try to change something. And so John says, it's very important that we understand the connection between my attitude to the Word of God and to His commandments. And that's going to be then whether I keep it or not. Because many people think that, oh, the commandments of God, oh my goodness, He's such a killjoy, and all He wants to do is ruin my life and run my life, and, and you never have any fun when you obey the commandments of God and all that. When you and I have that kind of attitude, then obviously that's going to affect our level of keeping His commandments. But when you and I have the attitude towards the commands of God like David did, I love your law. I, I can't wait to dig into more of your law and your commandments. They're what I think about all the day long. They're, they're my health and they're my strength. And, and you know, when that's our attitude about the commands of God, then there's going to be a higher level of wanting to keep them. Just a couple more tonight. Notice our realization of whose we are will be connected to our level of confident living. Our realization of whose we are will be connected to our level of confident living. In verse 4, because everyone who has been fathered by God, everyone who's been birthed by God, everyone who's been born again, or born from above, conquers the world. No matter what the world throws at those who've been fathered by God, God's Word says we are victorious over, we overcome, we prevail. Do we know whose we are? Are we God's children? Have we been fathered by God? And John says this isn't up for, like, it's not still hanging in the balance. It's as if it's already happened. In a sense, he's starting to come back to where we started with our position. We have been raised up with Christ. We've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. So John goes on to say, this is the conquering power. This is the means of victory or success in our life that has already conquered the world. Our faith. Now who is the person who's conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If we really understand whose we are, then our level of living life confidently, because it's like, wait a minute, if, if I'm God's, if I'm one of God's children, then I'm a conqueror. I'm an overcomer. I can prevail over anything the world throws at me. And we live our life with the confidence, not in ourselves, 
Not self-reliance or self-confidence, but the confidence in whose we are. We are God's children. And we base then our victory, our prevailing, our overcoming on the fact of whose we are. We're God's, you see. And that's what John wants us to know. For Christians that don't have that knowledge or appreciation for really whose they are, then they're going to struggle with living life confidently. See, they're going to live more of a discouraged, defeated life rather than the kind of life that John is talking about here. Because John says, again, we've got to know certain things. And we've got to understand that this correlates with this. This parallels this. This connects with this. If this is true, then this is true. Which leads me to one other thrilling piece of knowledge. If we have Jesus, we have everything. If we really understand that we possess Jesus Christ, then we have everything. Now, the reason I'm skipping verses 6 all the way down through verse 10 is that really in those verses, all John is doing is sort of reiterating the fact that God gave us clear testimony of who Jesus was. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's clear. And if one places their faith in Jesus and they know who they are and they possess Jesus, then again, look at verse 11 and 12. This is the testimony. This is the evidence that God has given. He's on record. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has this eternal life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have this eternal life. In other words, John is saying it all comes down to one person. Do you have Jesus? Then you've got everything. You don't have Jesus? Then you've got nothing. That's it. All that God offers us, He offers us in Jesus Christ. Oh, that we again would know that. Because again, so many Christians are like, yeah, I got Jesus, but I'm looking for something else. I need something else. And that's why Paul says to the Colossians, when you and I have Christ, Colossians 2.10, we are complete in Him. There's no incompleteness with one who has the Son. If we have the Son, then we've got eternal life. And again, eternal life means all that that means. It's not just, I know I'm a Christian, I know I'm on my way to heaven, I know my sins are forgiven. It's so much more than that. It's all the things that John has told us about here in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 5. Which is why then, in verse 13, John says, here's the purpose of why I wrote this entire letter. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And again, knowing I have eternal life is more than just knowing I'm saved. It's knowing the things that John talked about tonight. It's knowing if I'm God's, I can overcome the world and anything the world throws at me. If I have Jesus, I have everything that I need. If I love God, I'm going to love my fellow Christians. 
If, if I love my fellow Christians, I'm going to love God and obey His commandments. If I, if I love God, I'm going to keep His commandments. If I keep His commandments, I'm going to keep them because my attitude towards them is, they're not a burden. They're a blessing. All these things, John says, are the things that I want the followers of Jesus Christ to know. That's why, again, even though we're not going to cover it tonight, as John goes on to finish out this letter in verse 14 and 15, he basically says, I want you to know that God hears and answers your prayers. That should inspire you to pray more because do you really know God hears and answers prayer? Why are so many Christians prayerless and not praying more? Because God hears your prayer. God answers your prayer. John says, do you know these things? Do you, do you appreciate them? And so what a great letter John gave to us. And I've certainly been encouraged and challenged by the message of 1 John. I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have. When we come back in August, we're going to start a long series through three New Testament books. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And in all of these books, there is one common denominator, one common theme that runs throughout all three books. It's all about discovering the church. Discovering the church. What God thinks of the church. I'll leave you with a couple thoughts and then we'll pick this up in August. God's eternal purpose has always been to reveal His glory through a particular group of people. I mean, in the Old Testament, the story is God chose Israel so that Israel as a nation would reveal His glory to the other nations. He wanted to work through a particular group of people. In the New Testament, Jesus created the church and then created local churches and says to the local church, as he does in Revelation, I want you to be my lampstand or my lighthouse. I want this particular group of people to be a group of people that I can reflect and reveal my glory to others through. That's always been the purpose of God. Which is why when we begin to study the New Testament letters of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, here's what we see. That the church is literally to be the theater for the glory of God. Think about that. Our church, the Oasis, is to be the theater for the glory of God of God. That's what we're going to be talking about and studying when we come back in August. Also in August, we'll let you know these dates. We won't, come, we won't do it on the first Wednesday we come back, but on the second Wednesday we come back in August, we'll have a pizza party again like we have had in the past. And then we've already talked to Regina about, I think, the fourth Wednesday uh, of August. We're going to have, she wants to have an ice cream social. So twice in August, we're going to have a couple extra things, too, to try to build and bring people back and get people back to getting here on Wednesday night. 
and hearing what God's got to say as we discover the church. And what you and I, as part of the church, what's our role? What's our responsibility? If we're part of this great thing called the church, how do I fit in? And as we even talked about Sunday, what part does God want me to play? Thanks, guys, for being here. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for using this great apostle John, one who outlived all the other apostles, lived to a a ripe old age, even continued to suffer for you, God, way up into his later years as he even was exiled on the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony for Christ. And yet it was even there on that Island of isolation where you revealed to him the great book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for his faithfulness all those years. Long after you ascended and went back to heaven, God, how he followed you all those years. And how he wanted to to inspire others to be dedicated, committed, devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And to see, as he shares with us tonight how important it is that we know certain things. That we truly are aware and appreciate certain things as a Christian so that, Lord, we understand that our knowledge is going to shape our very life. That even, Lord, every day waking up knowing that You raised us up with Christ and that You have seated us with Him in heavenly places should affect our attitude and our perspective and our actions and and our practice, Lord, each and every day of our lives. If we'll even just come to grips with that realization every day, God, it can change the way we live. So God, thank you for this knowledge that we have tonight. And may it not again, Lord, just sit there on the surface, but may it penetrate, Lord, deep into our lives and literally change the way we live. For your glory, God, we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.